0: verses 20 to 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, good morning again. Happy Easter once again to all of you. Uh, it really is. It really is a joy for us to be able to gather together this morning and to be, se- to be able to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. You know, sometimes Easter Sunday sort of feels like the Super Bowl of the Christian calendar, right? It really does feel like that sometimes. It's the one day that everyone looks forward to. I mean, just like the Super Bowl, it's the one day that the, the regular watchers and the once-in-a-year watchers gather together in the same room to enjoy this game, right? Right? And just like the Super Bowl, uh, you know, we get together for meals, and we have meals together. We, we bust out our best gear. Our children bust out their best gear. We're just really excited. It really is just like the Super Bowl. And I get it, right? I mean, the resurrection is, a, is an essential and an important part of what it means for us to be Christians, no doubt. And we're not even trying to downplay Good Friday, Right? What I've been trying to say, that's not important. Because absolutely, Christ's death is essential to what we believe. What hope would we have for our lives if Christ did not die? It's essential. But the Bible says that actually that Easter is just as important as Good Friday is. That the resurrection is just as important as Christ's death is, right? Because when we look at the scriptures, what we find out is that, that if Jesus did not raise from the dead that this whole thing would just be nonsense, right? Us getting together this morning, this would just be a, no, a, a waste of time. We should be anywhere and everywhere besides gathering together here this morning. I mean, it's a nice day out. We should be out. We should be tailgating for the Phillies game that's going to start at 4 o'clock. We should be anywhere or but everywhere. We should be anywhere or everywhere besides being here this morning because this would just be a waste of time. But you see, the gospel what Christians call the gospel, the good news, isn't just that Jesus died, it's also that Jesus resurrected. It's that important. Like, we should be walking around with pendants of of an empty tomb around our neck, just as much as we walk around with pendants of a cross around our neck. The resurrection is that important. It's essential to what we believe and who we are as Christians. Well, for us, At Seven Mile Road, we've sort of been celebrating Easter Sunday for five consecutive weeks now, right? It's sort of like our fifth. How does the resurrection affect life after death? But then we also want to consider, how does the resurrection affect life before death? And so this morning, we're going to keep going, and we're going to consider this truth. We're going to consider that because Jesus rose from the dead, death itself will die, Let me say that again, that because Jesus rose from the dead, death itself will die. But before I begin, I think it's probably important for us just to spend a few moments just being honest with each other about death, right? Let's shoot straight with one another about about death and what we think about death. You see, if we're being honest with each other, I think we would all say that no one likes talking about death, right? No one gets excited to talk about death. No one comes to Easter service thinking that we're going to get together to talk about death because that's why we got together on Friday night, right? We got together on Friday to talk about death. Why in the world are we talking about death again this morning? I mean, isn't this service all supposed to be about life? Why are we, why are we doing this? Because you see, in our day and age, death is sort of like that, that shady mess of a cousin that all of us have in our lives. Right, that that messed up cousin that we sort of uh, don't know what to do with. Because some of us, we know that he exists, uh, but we try really hard not to think about him. We sort of pretend like he's not really there, or or some of us, uh, some of us we we keep telling ourselves that he's really just not that bad, right? We'll say things like, I mean, how bad is larceny? I mean, it's not. <laughs> and he really didn't mean to like to kill that person. It was just sort of a misunderstanding. He's really just not that bad of a person, right? Or some of us, uh, you're not worried about him, right? Because you swear that you can take him. Because you're, you're bigger than he is. You're stronger than he is. You're, you're smarter than he is. So, so you're, your position about your cousin is sort of like that I wish he would type of position, right? <laughs> right? Like I wish he would come knocking at my door because I can take this bull, right? I, that's kind of the position that you have. And, and for others... The last thing that you want to do is cross paths with with your cousin. I mean, you know that one day you will have to, but until then, you're going to try your hardest to make sure that you stay away from him. You see, death really is like that shady, messed-up cousin that we have in our lives. We just don't know what to do with death. We don't know how to respond to death. We don't know how to think about death. We don't know how to feel about death. It's one of those taboo topics that we'll deal with when we really need to or when we really have to, right? Death is one of those things. Well, thankfully, the Bible doesn't deal with death in the way that we do, right? The Bible doesn't try to skirt around the topic. It doesn't try to avoid the topic. In fact, the Bible deals with death head on because, you see, this is the reason why. The Bible is clear on the fact that unless you understand death, there's no way that you'll be able to understand resurrection. Hear that again. Unless you understand death, there's absolutely no way for you to be able to understand resurrection. Unless you understand death, Easter Sunday doesn't really make sense to you. Because then you'll end up being like that annoying person at the Super Bowl party who just cheers about everything, right? Uh, their own team fumbles the ball, and they're just cheering, right? Right? Listen, if you didn't laugh at that joke, you might be that annoying person (laughs) at that Super Bowl party. Well, why do they do that? Why do they laugh and cheer at everything? Because they just know, all that they know is that they should be excited. But they're not really sure what it is that they should be excited about. Well, see, Easter Sunday can be like that for some of us. We know that we should be excited. We know that this is an important day. We're just not really sure what it is that we should be excited about. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend this morning to take some time to consider death, to consider what the Bible has to say about death, to consider what death has done to us, and then finally to consider what Jesus has done to death. And so for us to be able to do that, we need a lot of help. So let's ask the Lord for help together this morning. Our Father, we are grateful that you do give us this glorious day for us to get together and to celebrate and to be joyful. This really is a great source of celebration and joy for us. We gather together because we do have much to celebrate. We do have much to be joyful about. And yet, Lord, We confess, especially if if we are people who maybe grew up in the church or maybe grew up just kind of having a familiarity with the Bible, sometimes we know that we should be celebrating. We're just not really clear on on what it is that we're actually celebrating this morning. And, Father, I'm not wise enough to be able to communicate that. I can't uh, convince anyone of those truths. We need you, the one that made those truths actually true, to convince us of that truth. And so we're asking, us this, we're asking you this morning that you would, by your spirit, convince us of what it is that we need to know. So that this morning, this day, we would truly be able to celebrate. That we would truly be joyful this morning because of what you have done. We need your help. Please help us. We know that you're glad to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the question is, what does the Bible tell us about death? Well, I think the first thing that the Bible wants to tell us about death is that death is a foe. Death is a foe. I want to be clear on this, right? Death is not a friend. It's not just misunderstood. It really is as bad as it seems. Death is an enemy to us, And in order for us to understand why that's true, what we need to do is actually go back all the way to the beginning, all the way to Genesis chapter 1. Because you see, when we consider Genesis chapter 1, what we start to realize is that when God created the world, he created everything to be good, right? Everything that he created was good. It was beautiful. The world was perfect, perfect in every way. The world was a place where there was no suffering. Some of us here this morning are, are here in a moment and in a season of suffering. Take a moment to consider what it would be like for that not to be true. To be in a place where there is perfection in every way. To be in a place where it is, there's a place where there's no suffering No pain of any kind. You don't wake up with your back hurting. You don't wake up with your heart broken. It was a perfect world. I mean, simple things. Like, there was no rotten food. There was no weird smells. There were no bare trees. There were no roadkill. It was perfect in every way. There was no death of any kind. But what we find when we read Genesis is that that perfection, that beauty, quickly comes to an end. You see, as much as Adam looks out and he sees this perfect world that is around him, and as much as he knows that this perfect world was given to him for him to be able to enjoy it, he decides that it's not enough, that he wants more. And so what does he decide to do? He decides that he wants to be God He decides that he's going to do the one thing. Consider that, right? The entire world is perfect. Perfect in every way. And yet he wants to do the one thing that God tells him not to do. He's going to disobey his creator and he's going to eat of that fruit. And what we read in Genesis is that the moment that he does that, it's like everything that was in this world, everything that was perfect in this world, immediately goes into chaos. I mean, we're just three chapters in into the history of the universe. Just three chapters in, and everything is a mess, right? All of a sudden, this, this beautiful and perfect and plush and colorful planet that God, had, that God had created now looks pale and lifeless and reeks of death. I remember being able to talk to some people who, unfortunately and sadly, had to visit a disaster area once in their life right, who went into an area where a disaster has just happened, and they're in the presence of a, of a place where uh, hundreds of people are lying before them dead. And I remember them telling me that when they walked into that area, it was almost like they can smell death, it, that they can taste death, it's like almost like death can is palpable. It's, it's, it's taste, they can they can. Feel what death feels like, not just a concept of death. They're smelling death. They're tasting death. It reeks of death. And I imagine that when Adam was there, same Adam who just moments ago was experiencing the fullness of life, smelling the greatest smells ever, seeing the, the most perfect things ever, when he disobeyed God, I imagine that that smell of death was overwhelming. I imagine that he could smell it in his nostrils. I imagine that he could taste it in his mouth. That that death was overwhelming to him. That death had become pervasive. It's sort of like this this tsunami of death was knocking over and destroying everything that stood in its way. Everything that God had created to be good and perfect and beautiful, he now knocks over and everything looks like a mess. And then chapter 2. I'm sorry, two chapters later in chapter five, we get a chance to see how pervasive death really is. Because when we begin to read chapter five, it sort of feels like we're visiting a graveyard. Remember, this is just five chapters in to to the Bible. This is five chapters in into the history of the world, and all we see is example after example of life that ends up in death. I mean, we're talking about powerful men here we're talking about mighty men here we're talking about strong men here but at the end of the day all of these men end up just being dead men all of their stories would end the same in chapter five you read name after name after name of this being true and so you read adam lived and then he died seth lived and then he died Enosh lived, and then he died. Kenan lived, and then he died. Jared lived, and then he died. And the list goes on and on and on and on about these men who once lived, and then they died. And you see, when you start reading Genesis chapter 5, you feel it in your gut that something's off about this. Right? This isn't right. Consider this for a moment. When God created the world, he created everything to be good. And what that meant was that people were not meant to die. Death wasn't a part of what God created. Death is a result of what Adam did. And so these people who once lived, and read it, some of them lived to 900 years old. And you say, you know what? Maybe after 900 years, who cares if you die? Right? But that's not it. God created this world to be perfect, where death would not be included in its story. But because of what Adam did, death was a part of each one of these men's story. And when you read this, you begin to realize immediately that death is a foe. And guess what you don't see in chapter 5? You read list after or example after example of people who die. What you don't read in chapter 5 is the author trying to pretty up death, right? Nowhere in chapter 5 does he say, well, you know, I know Adam died, but after a while it wasn't so bad. Or nowhere do you read the author saying, you know what, I know Seth died, but we came to terms with it. And it's just getting easier now for us to deal with it. No, you don't see that anywhere, right? Instead, the moment that you see the list, you know that this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. It's easy to see that death is a foe and that he has come to destroy all that God has created to be good. But you see, sometimes you and I, we don't see that, right? Instead, we try our hardest to pretty up death. Let me tell you a story. It's actually a story about a car that I owned in high school. Now, I actually told the story, uh, a similar story in a sermon beforehand. And so when I was creating this sermon, I just realized how much of an impact this car has had on my life, that it keeps coming up in illustrations left and right. But this is a car that I used to drive in high school. It was a Mazda protege, right? Now, I was in high school, right? So we all know just the, the fact of being able to own a car in high school should be good enough, right? That's a gift. Like how many high schoolers are driving around with cars? And so that should be a gift. That should be a gift. But what we also do know is that as teenagers, uh, image is everything, right? Image is everything. Well, as cool as it is to be able to own a car in high school, uh, this car wasn't exactly helping my image. A- and the reason for that was that this car was green. Now, some of you have green cars, right? But your green cars are cool. Like, what I mean by that is because some of your cars are like forest green or like Uh, Eagles Kelly green like that's that sort of green my car was not that kind of green it was Gumby green I'm not even joking I wish I was Uh, if you remember the character Gumby from back in the day it was that color it was a a bright electric neon green that somehow they put onto this car I'm not even sure that I've ever seen a car just like it I don't know if somebody was playing a trick on me and gave me this car but this car was Gumby green and it could be seen from miles away Uh, I mean, people knew when I was going to high school because they saw Gumby Green protege coming, right? But one day, God did me a favor. He allowed me to get rear-ended, right? (laughs) I was praising the Lord when that happened. And so what happens? Insurance pays me some money uh, so that I can get my car fixed up. I don't want to get my car fixed up. What I did do instead was that I ran to Mako, Right? I don't know if everybody here knows what Mako. Mako paints cars. So, what I did was, I ran to Mako and I was like, You gotta help me, buddy. So, I I told them, You gotta paint my car. And so, all of a sudden, my Gumby Green protege was now midnight blue, right? Uh, Midnight blue was really just black. I'm not sure why they called it midnight blue. Uh, Because you couldn't, there was no, there's not a hint of blue in that car. But it was midnight blue. Now, here's the thing, here's the only thing, right? Uh, unfortunately, I'm not trying to knock Mako, unless some of you guys work at Mako or something, but uh, they did a horrible job painting that car. It was just awful, right? The moment that you open up the door, the moment you open up the door, inside, entirely Gumby Green still, right? <laughs> Everywhere you look, inside of the car was Gumby Green. And if you look around on the car, you would see specks of Gumby Green. It was almost like the Gumby Green was like trying to force itself out. <laughs> Of the car, because, like, no, you're not. You're not, you're not, this is not the end of me. Everywhere you look, you would just see specks of Gumby Green all over the place. You see, no matter how much I would try to pretty up my car, at the end of the day, everyone knew that it was still just a Gumby Green car. I think that sometimes we try to do the same exact thing with death. We try to pretty up death. Like, for example, listen to a popular poem. That's often used at funerals, that's sometimes printed on the program or said, recited at a funeral. Listen to what it says. It says, Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there, I did not die. Again, I'm not trying to knock this author, right? This, this, uh, the author of this poem, because it actually is a beautiful poem. It's, it's well written. It's, it's pretty. It's actually even a little bit calming. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, there's nothing beautiful about death. There's nothing beautiful about death. Death isn't pretty. Death isn't comforting. No matter how much we try to pretty it up, at the end of the day, we'll inevitably see it for what it is. It's a foe. An author named Trevin Wax said the following. He said, we mask the stench of death so as to spiritualize it, to redefine it as something good, not bad. So we talk about death in peaceful terms. We say things like, death is just a natural part of life. We soften our language and talk about Passing away, we speak about people who've died as if they're angels in the heavens or stars in the sky. But no amount of spiritualization can take away the sting of death. Deep down, we know this is true. There is nothing more unsettling and saddening than to watch someone else suffer and die. You see, Trevin Wax is absolutely right. Death is unsettling. Death is saddening. No matter how much we try to pretty it up, deep down we know that death is a foe. Death is an ugly foe. You see, I think I I came to realize this for the first time when I was in high school, when I attended the funeral of a friend, of a peer of mine. His name was Josh, and he was 17 years old, and he died suddenly of a car accident. And, And I remember that as a teenager, he was lying there in the casket, dressed up in his best suit. But you see, it didn't matter how nice that suit was that day. We all knew. We all knew. The moment you got there, the moment you saw him, you all, we all knew that there was nothing at all pretty about this funeral. There's no way for us to paint this picture in a way that it makes us feel better. Deep down, everyone that, that was there that day knew deep down that death is a foe, that death is an enemy that came to rob this teenager of life. Or when I watched my grandmother battle cancer over a decade ago, as we watched her body slowly falling apart, as we watched her into her last days where she could hardly even speak, she could hardly even move. She was ridden to a bed. She could hardly move around at all. And as we were lowering her into her grave, the prettiest of poems couldn't have helped us to be okay with death. You see, death is not a friend, it's a foe. It's an enemy that robbed this sweet woman of life. And obviously, it's not just me, right? It's not just me that has had these types of experiences. We've all had these types of experiences, whether personally, or just by looking out into the world, we all know that death is a foe. We all know that toddlers are not supposed to die from hunger and from poverty. We know that 11-year-olds are not supposed to die from straight bullets. We know that 20-year-olds are not supposed to die from cancer, that heart attacks, that car accidents, that plane crashes, that dementia, that drugs, that these are all examples of things that are not supposed to be. And so here's the thing. No matter how much we might try to pretty up death, the Bible does not try to do the same thing. It doesn't care to do that. Instead, the Bible tells it like it is. It confirms for us what we already know deep down inside. It tells us, without a doubt, that death is a foe. And that death has been a foe ever since it entered into the scene. Ever since it came into the world, death has been a foe. You see, only when we begin to understand that, and only when we begin to understand the weight and the ugliness of death, only then will Easter begin to make sense for us. Only then will we begin to know what it is that we're actually joyful about this morning, why it is that we get together and we're excited. Only then will we begin to know. And so Paul, what does he do? He tries to make it clear for us. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22. This is what Paul says. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What's Paul saying here? Paul is saying, listen, you've read Genesis chapter 5, right? You've read Genesis chapter 5, so you know what happens to all of these people. You saw what happened to Adam and what happened to Seth and what happened to Enosh and all of them. They lived, and then they died. And it's not even just Genesis. You read the rest of the scriptures, right? You read the scriptures, and so you know that every pagan, every priest, every prophet, their story is the same. They live, and then they die. And it's not even just the scriptures, right? When you read the daily news, you know this is the story of the world. Every single day we see it. I mean, do you imagine ever opening up the paper one day or, or going online or, or watching the news one day and imagining that there isn't going to be a story about death? It's almost just common knowledge. We know this is a story of the world. People die. People die every day. Death has just become a common occurrence. And forget that. Just even look at your own genealogy. Of those who have come before you, their stories have been the same. They have lived and then they died. You see, death is everywhere. It's a part of all of our stories. Because of what Adam did in that garden, consider that. Because of what Adam did in that garden, everyone's story ends with two simple words. Here lies. Everyone's story. There's no way to run from it. There's no way to escape it. We can can try to slow it down. We can try to hide from it. But at some point, death will find us. Everyone's story is the same. Everyone's story ends with two words, here lies. That is, everyone, except for one man. You see, Paul reminds us that unlike our own stories, Jesus' story is different. Unlike us, His story actually doesn't end with those two words, here lies. It ends with two different words. He's risen, right? You see, death is like an an undefeated boxer, right? Death is sort of like uh, Floyd Mayweather, right? Floyd Mayweather's record is 45 wins and zero losses. He's just knocking out boxers left and right. Doesn't matter who comes into the ring, he's knocking them out. Well, you know what? Floyd Mayweather looks like a chump compared to death. Because Floyd—I mean death's record is like 100 billion wins and zero losses. 100 billion wins and zero losses. Death is just knocking out people left and right. Anyone that stands in its way, it is knocking out. And that's when Easter comes along to remind us that death is no longer undefeated. Death is no longer undefeated. All of a sudden, death's record is no longer perfect because there's a one in the loss column now. And my friends, Easter is the good news that that one loss, that one loss makes all the difference because through that one loss, we learn that death itself has been defeated. And it's all because Jesus has resurrected from the grave. You see, while Adam's one act of disobedience brought death the world, Jesus' one act of obedience brings life into the world. And while in Adam we have all inherited a sin nature and we will ultimately die, in Christ all who believe in him have inherited righteousness and we will all ultimately live. And while those who descend from Adam find their stories ending in here lies, the scriptures tell us that those who find themselves descending from Jesus We'll find their stories ending in, he's risen. She's risen. Our stories are different this morning. You see, Jesus came to bring an end to the biggest foe that we have in our lives. Jesus came to bring an end to the enemy that that Adam ushered in into this world, to bring an end to death itself. And that's why we come to celebrate this morning. Death has been defeated. Now, here's the thing, right? If you're thinking through what I'm saying, you probably have a question that comes to your mind, and it's a, it's a legitimate question. Because we'll say, you know what? That sounds really good. It really does. But obviously, you see the problem with what you're saying, right? Because if, if death has been defeated, then why is there still death? Why do we still attend funerals? Why do funeral homes still exist? Why, uh, why do they still have business, why are there tombs and grave sites that we must go to? Well, listen to what Paul says in verse 23. It says, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Let me read that again. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What's Paul saying here? Paul is describing the defeat of death as something that has already happened, as well as something that has not yet happened. He's saying death, the defeat of death, is something that has already happened, as well as something that has not yet happened. What are we talking about? Well, you see, the defeat of death and the resurrection of the dead is something that has already happened. How do we know? Because right now, today, if you were to go to Jerusalem, if you were to go outside of Jerusalem, you would find an empty tomb there. You will find an empty tomb where Jesus once laid. The same tomb where Christ, after he was put onto a cross and killed, he was brought down and placed into this tomb. If you go there, it is empty because he has risen. How do you know that? Because it says that he appeared to all sorts of people, to hundreds of people. He appeared as a resurrected man to hundreds of people and that he stood before them physically resurrected that his corpse was raised to life. It says that they did things like feel the wounds, where where the nails were once pierced into his body. They felt those wounds. They looked at him. They saw him. They felt felt him. They ate with him. And because that, they knew, without a shadow of a doubt, this man has risen. He was just dead three days ago. We saw it. We heard about it. He was in a tomb Guards were guarding it, and now he's not there anymore. Everyone that was there and saw Jesus knew that Jesus was the first one to ever defeat death, to find victory over death, to come back from the dead, to never to die again. Jesus was the first one. And, that's, and because that's true, Paul describes Jesus as the firstfruits. What does that mean, the first fruits. It's actually a farming term. You see, back in the day, after a season of hard work, after a season of long labor, of planting seeds and and watering it and, and tilling the soil, all that stuff, after that long season, when the farmers knew that their crops were ready, before they would go out and harvest the entire field, they would pull just a small sample. They would pull a small sample, and they would bring that sample to the priest as an offering to that Lord offering to the lord and that sample served two purposes first it was understood everyone understood that when your field was ready to be harvested you couldn't harvest the entire field until you harvested first that sample the first fruits needed to be presented the the presentation of the first fruits made the harvesting of the rest of the field possible but then secondly the first fruits served as a preview of what was yet to come it was sort of serving like a guarantee that there would actually be more to harvest. And so you see, this is why Paul calls Jesus the first fruits. Because until Jesus resurrected, resurrection wasn't a possibility for anyone. You see, until he was presented to the Father as being resurrected, resurrection wasn't a possibility for anyone. But because he rose from the dead... We, too, are able to rise. But not only that, because Jesus did rise from the dead, it guarantees us that one day we will rise as well. Jesus is sort of like a down payment for us, a sign that there is more to come, that one day that we, too, will receive resurrected bodies just like our Lord had a resurrected body when those who saw him saw him. And so the question is, when does that happen? Paul tells us it happens when Christ returns. You see, when those who are in Christ die, when those who believe in Jesus, when those who trust in him die, they go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. Right? The scripture says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Right? There is no, de- there's no delay of any kind. In the, in the blink of an eye, you will be in the presence of your Lord and your Savior. But you see, when that happens... You're actually there in spiritual form, in spiritual being, as a spiritual being, right? And so, what Paul is telling us here is that there will come a day when Christ returns where we will actually be reunited with physical bodies, to be reunited with resurrected bodies, to be reunited with these glorious bodies. And how do we know that that's true? Because the first fruit made that resurrection possible. Because the hundreds that saw him, they saw him not as a spiritual being. They weren't able to put their finger through him. They saw him as a bodily resurrected person, as a man who has been given a resurrected body, a glorious body. And because we know that that's true of Jesus, we know and we can be guaranteed that that will be true of us. But you see, that's not even it. Paul tells us more. Starting at verse 24, this is what he says. He says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, when Jesus returns, he doesn't just bring resurrection. He not only just gives us glorious resurrected bodies, Paul tells us that he actually destroys death itself once and for all. You see, we're not just talking about like a, a, a TKO here, right? Not a total knockout. We're not even talking about a, a career-ending knockout. We're talking about an, a life-ending knockout. In other words, death itself will be put in a grave. Death itself will be destroyed. Death itself will need to be dropped six feet under. You see, we said last week that when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he came to establish God's kingdom here on earth, right? He ushered in this, this new kingdom that was now coming on earth. He came here to make all things right, to make all things new. Well, when he returns, he will finish that work that he began over 2,000 years ago. It says that he will put all his enemies under his feet. And sort of the the last battle that needs to be fought, the last enemy that needs to be destroyed, is death itself. We need to hear this. God has no pity for death. Death is not a friend to him. Something that he's gotten used to. Death is a foe. Death is an enemy, and God promises to destroy death forever when Jesus returns. And do you know how much Paul believes this? Do you know how much Paul is convinced of what he's saying? Listen to verse 55. Listen to what he says. He says, O death, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? you know what that is that's biblical trash talking <laughs> paul is talking trash to death you see it's like that confident boxer and maybe we've seen it before where the boxer is just even at the press conference right he's just at the press conference and he's staring down his opponent and he's just sitting there talking out loud He sees the person standing there, and he's just talking trash. They're not even asking him to say anything. He's not even at the mic. He's just standing there. He's looking at his opponent, and he's talking trash because he knows he's going to defeat him, right? And the thing is, it's not even just the boxer that knows that he's going to defeat his opponent. Everyone knows it. Everyone that's around him knows it. They know that this is no no real competition here, right? Right? that his opponent is going to die. In fact, the opponent himself knows that he's about to be defeated. So he's not saying anything back. He's just looking straight, and he's talking trash, right? There's really no competition. I mean, we've seen it before. They're not even at the ring, all they hear is their, their music comes on, and they're just sort of already kind of pacing back and forth, talking trash. They see the, they see the camera come up to them. And what do they do? They start looking into the camera and yelling at the camera because he knows that he's going to go into that ring, and he's going to defeat his opponent. There's no competition there. Everybody knows what's about to happen. You see, Paul's talking trash, but Paul's not talking trash because Paul is about to defeat death. Instead, he's talking trash because Jesus is. How does Paul know that? Because Jesus already defeated death once before. Remember, death's record is 100 billion wins and one loss. Death has already been defeated. And now Jesus is about to destroy death completely, to put death in its grave once and for all. Brothers and sisters, today is a glorious day, a joyful day, a day for us to celebrate for sure, a day where Christians all over the world are celebrating just like we are. But our celebration doesn't require us to pretty up death, to soften its blow, to pretend like it's not as bad as it really is. No, instead, we celebrate because we actually see death for what it really is. We celebrate because we know that death is a foe, an enemy, an enemy that has already been defeated by the resurrection of the Christ, and an enemy that will one day be defeated completely when he returns. Where, oh death, is your sting? Where is your victory? We talk trash to death, not because we will defeat death one day, but because Jesus has defeated death. Let's celebrate today. Let's pray. Our Lord, on this morning, we say with Paul, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we remember this morning that death is not a friend. We don't need and we don't have to pretty up death. Death is a foe. But thanks be to God that you sent your son who has defeated death through his resurrection, that he is the first fruit, and so that we can take confidence in knowing that we too shall rise as he has risen. Thank you, our Lord, that you truly have given us much reason for us to celebrate this morning. Easter is a glorious and a joyful day for us, a day where all of God's people have the opportunity to celebrate. We pray, our Lord, you would stir our affections so that we would indeed celebrate what you have done and what you have yet to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray.